Gangry the Podcast is made possible by River Teeth Journal, a journal of nonfiction narrative. The River Teeth Nonfiction Conference will be held at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio, May 17th through the 19th. It will feature guest speakers Rebecca McClanahan and Scott Russell Sanders, journalists Brian Mockenhop, Earl Swift, and a dozen more writers of essay, memoir, and literary journalism will be on hand to offer instruction in nonfiction writing. For more information, visit riverteethjournal.com. This is Matt Tullis. Just a reminder, but you can download Ganger the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all of our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Gangrey Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. This week on Gangry the Podcast, we talk with Jesse Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein wrote the story, Do We Really Want to Live Without the Post Office, for the February issue of Esquire. In the story, Lichtenstein takes the reader throughout the entire process of how a piece of mail moves across the country. He talks to all the people who touch our mail. He also breaks down the current debate raging about how to, or whether, to save the Postal Service. Recently, the U.S. Postal Service announced it would stop delivering mail on Saturdays. It will still deliver packages on those days, but not mail. If you read Lichtenstein's piece, you'll understand why this arrangement has been made and why it's important. We've linked to the story on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, can we start things off by having you read a, a section of your story? Sure, no problem. The letter is mailed from Gold Hill, Oregon. The 1,100 residents of this lingering gold rush town, mostly mechanics and carpenters and retail clerks and other places, wake with the sun and end their day with a walk to the aluminum mailbox bolted to a post at the edge of their yard. In between, Carrie Gravenhorst heads out of town on Highway 99, follows the Rogue River, and turns right on Sardine Creek Road. She turns left at a large madrone tree and heads up a quarter mile of dirt road, takes the right fork, goes past the sagging red barn to a white clappered house with green trim, where she takes a dog biscuit from her pocket and offers it to the large golden retriever. It's Monday, about 2 p.m. The dog stops barking. This is the usual piece, negotiated after thousands of visits over 18 years. Often, Gravenhorst's elderly customers are waiting at the door, or even by the mailbox for her right-hand drive Jeep to edge onto the shoulder. Many of them are alone all day. Their postal carrier is that one reliable human contact, six days a week. Some are older veterans, quite a few have lived, have limited mobility, and it isn't uncommon for her to lend a hand with an errand. She's been known to pick up milk in town and bring it along with the mail. Gravenhorst drives 70 miles a day and makes 660 deliveries. On a typical day, that might include 50 packages of medicine. Her route is one of 227,000 throughout America. On the south side of Chicago, carriers walk cracked sidewalks past empty lots and overfilled projects. 
In the suburbs of Phoenix, mail trucks deliver to banks of mailboxes outside gated communities. In Brooklyn, they push their carts up sidewalks and ducked into bodegas on September 11th, as they always do. Residents say they were comforted to see their postal workers still making the rounds, the government still functioning. In rural Alaska, mail comes by snowmobile and seaplane. In chaps and a cowboy hat, Charlie Chamberlain leads a train of postal mules down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, where a tribe of Havasupai Indians live. Wearing blue trunks and a ball cap, Mark Lipscomb delivers letters by speedboat up and down the Magnolia River in Alabama. I really love that last paragraph um, because I don't know why, but I just always assumed that everybody gets mail the same way that I get mail, mm-hmm. and that's a rural carrier, essentially. Um, yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how, I guess, this story came about? Yeah. Um, no, it really came about at, at the uh, instigation or the, with the, of, of an editor at Esquire, Tyler Cabot, um, whom I, I met, um, and he sort of encouraged me to, to, to propose some stories to them. And I had a couple of ideas and at one point I, I kind of, I sent my ideas to him and he thought they were okay. You know, they were interesting, but maybe not, not quite what he was looking for. And at the time he, he had, he really wanted to try to do a, you know, a big piece in Esquire, um, about the postal service, about the mail, and of course, it had been in the news for a while. But but the nature of the post office is that it usually doesn't make big news unless something dramatic happens, and that's part of the point is that we somewhat take it for granted. Um, so he asked me to, you know, if I was interested in in the mail, and I very much am. I grew up in a rural area, and you know, I think it really was. I feel like it was my lifeline. You know, in pre pre internet, um, you know, I got my music through the mail. I get I get my CDs and you know from the Columbia Record Club or, or whatever, um, and it was how I'd keep in contact with friends in other places. So I, I, I he asked he gave me like a weekend and said just write up all your thoughts on the mail and and the issues facing it and you know let's see if we're on the same page. And so I kind of spent a feverish weekend writing up all you know all the my thoughts on the mail and what, what the, uh, what the controversies were and what the challenges were. Um, and he said, that's, that's sort of, that sounds like we're on the same page. Let's, uh, let, let's do this. So that, that was a, a year ago, well, maybe a little more than a year ago, actually. And the whole process of actually bringing this piece to, to fruition, um, ended up taking about a year. Now the, um, the scope of the piece is, is really big. I mean, you follow mail almost across the country. So I'm curious about the reporting process and what that was like. Like, how did you go about, like, how did you decide this is how I'm going to address this story? Yeah. Um, it was, this is, this was a challenging piece for me. Um, because I think it began in a really open-ended way. And, and that was, um, mail, um, you know, the mail is facing this great, this great crisis, or at least the USPS is, is, is facing a crisis, or it seems to be, I mean, that itself was, was one of the questions, how great a crisis is it, is it in? Um, l- let's write an article about this that really, ex- you know, shows what mail is and how it works, but also gets into the, into the kind of the politics and the, 
uh, social ramifications and all of that. So I think we began with an idea of, of wanting to have a, a comprehensive piece, like something that really had a large scope and, and was, you know, tried to be ambitious in that sense of, of, of the angles it was going to cover and, and its approaches. But no real structure in place to begin with. It was really more like go go report and see what you find and then, you know, let's try to shape a piece out of this. So. It was, you know, in some ways a little daunting um, because, as you can imagine, um, you know, this is how long the piece ended up being. And so there's always, the, you know, it's always the tip of the iceberg. There's all, everything else that you come across that doesn't make it into the story. So it was a lot, a lot you know, it was a lot of learning for me to do. I, I do have an appreciation of mail, but I think like, you know, the majority of Americans, um, I'm not, in, I wasn't intimately familiar with how mail actually worked, what the what the mechanics of it were, nor the ex, the extent of the network and, and everything that went into it. So, the place we started, I think, was really just trying to, you know, I, I tried to learn about how the mail worked, and you know, start with some of the the people and the physical mechanics of it, and then also. Um, uh, early on, I went to a convention, the National Postal Forum um, in Orlando, which which has a kind of a brief uh, a brief mention in the piece. And got to see, you know, sort of the, the business side of it too. all the big mailers and, and all the big insurance companies and, you know, Netflix and um, the uh, all the different utilities. And, the, you know, they're really the major users of the mail stream um, who, you know, we often think of ourselves as the customers of, of the Postal Service. We, you know, we're mailing things. We think of how much postage costs. But, uh, you know, we are customers. But. The re- the big customers, the real customers, are also the um, the big companies that really fill fill the mail stream because you know, a lot of mail that we get now is still is business mail. So that was interesting too to kind of see that side and and with those two perspectives um, at the beginning, I started to piece and, and figure out a structure for it. But it took it took it took a lot of rewriting. Right, right. Um, when did you? Uh, I'm curious, like how you found the mar- mail carriers you found. And how long did that take you to find kind of the right people? With that, we actually had to sort of secure the cooperation of the uh, of the Postal Service because um, without it, you know, the, 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 there was no way to really go behind the scenes. So it was, in, you know, part of that was dealing with the um, kind of public affairs side of the Postal Service and they helped find people. Um, I wanted to start in in rural Oregon because that's that's where I'm from, um, and I wanted to, uh, you know, that in a sense that was my, just how how you have an image in your mind of how the mail gets delivered and, and kind of you know assume that or that everyone else gets mailed the same way. That was my idea of mail um, growing up, so that was where I wanted to start, and then it kind of made sense to end up somewhere, you know, uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, more urban. I know you've done a lot of different types of writing in your life, uh, and I'm curious about reporting and how much reporting had you done before this story, before you got into this? Well, I'd, um, I'd written uh, pieces, uh, several pieces for the New York Times Magazine, uh, some of you know, which were, were pretty heavily reported. Um, I wrote a piece a couple years ago that really was sort of, I kind of laid out the State Department's 
um, new strategy of, of digital diplomacy and using the, the tools of, of the internet um, to engage with younger populations, particularly in um, in the Arab world. And this was sort of uh, this was in 2010. So this was like kind of six months before um, all, all the, the revolutions in North excuse me North Africa and um, Middle East started. So that and that was a pretty you know that involves a lot of reporting. Um, and I've written for Slate, um, the reported pieces. So I, I had I had I had done some reporting before um, and and written a few longer pieces, um, and I and I had learned, um, you know, in a way I think I think some people come to long long form journalism if you want to call it that from. Uh, shorter form journalism and from, you know, reporting out of daily papers, um, who really kind of get their chops, uh, as reporters. And that wasn't my background as much, but I did, um, I kind of came to it more from writing from different kinds of writing, as you said, but I did work for uh, a couple of years, um, in a kind of high pressure magazine, magazine environment, uh, in New York at, uh, at the New Yorker magazine, where I was a fact checker and, and researcher and really got to see sort of behind the scenes by re-reporting essentially all the, you know, all the pieces that came my way and contacting all the sources and, you know, covering all the facts and then finding independent sources to either verify or um, contest the claims made either by the author or by um, subjects in the piece. Um, a, a real sense of, you know, if not uh, experience in on the get on the ground reporting and, and what and what those challenges were, a lot of the the questions of you know the ethical questions, the um, the need for thoroughness and the extent that you have to go to 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 say to make make claims with confidence that you've um, you know exhausted your your resources and and uh, reached the people that you need to reach. So that that was a helpful background, um, but it's not it wasn't the same as you know, actually going out into the world and, and, you know, meeting people where they are and uh, try, trying to get them to tell you their story. Yeah, it is fascinating the different ways people get to to this point, I guess, when, when, you, when you're writing for Esquire, the New York Times Magazine. How, what, was the, what was it like to write? Uh, this, this was your first piece in Esquire. Uh, is it, was it different than other publications that you've written for? Yeah. Um, it was... I feel like it was much more of a of a um, col- you know collaborative effort with the editor in the sense that the that the editor was is really much more involved um, from the get go. I know I know that you know in this case it, in particular is because it was an idea that had been sort of uh, you know brewing in in the head of of uh, Tyler, my editor. Um, so I think he felt very invested in it too. Um, but I, I think that. A magazine like Esquire, um, especially, and, and this may be an experience that changes over time. It may also be the experience of being a first-time writer for them that they're a little bit more um, hands-on. But uh, even in terms of down to details of of travel, you know, the, the editor being very involved in kind of, you know, booking your flights or how you get setting up um, some of the uh, so, some of the interactions that you have with people. When I'd written for the Times Magazine, you know, you basically pitch a story. And they say, you know, if they like it, they say, great, go do that. Here's your, here's, you have a research budget of X, you know, turn it in Y. And then, you know, you're sort of on your own to the extent that uh, last year I was reporting a story that brought me to uh, 
Jordan and Algeria and Tunisia. And it was essentially, okay, well, you know, great. Go, go report that, um, you know, don't, don't die and, uh, come back. So not that Jordan was that, that dangerous, but, uh, so yeah, so, so it was, I think some places are much more hands-off and, and, um, and I think a magazine like Esquire uh, seems to kind of get down in the trenches with the author um, a bit more than some places. Can you talk a little bit about, um, uh, I know shortly after this story ran in the February issue of Esquire, uh, it must have been maybe a couple weeks later that the U.S. Postal Service announced that they were going to cut uh, mail delivery on Saturdays but still deliver packages were you, did you know that announcement was coming based on your the 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 reporting you had done or or were you surprised by that i was i was surprised by that um there was no indica- and i think a lot of people were um there was no indication in the reporting that i'd done that the postal service thought that it had the right to sort of make that decision without congressional approval. And I, and there's been, I think, continued debate about whether or not they actually do. Um, and in fact, I think that, you know, one of the contentions of, uh, I believe one of the, some of the senators are, are, that, that they've made publicly is that is there, as you know, recently as six months ago or a little while ago, the Postal Service's in, in you know, uh, itself had, had said or its internal documents had said that they didn't believe they had the right to sort of unilaterally change their their service like that so um it was a, it was definitely a surprise and you know you could look at some different motivations for it. it it got people's attention it certainly got congress's attention and that was something that the postal service had been unable to do to get congress to act um you know for a couple of years now it's been it's been asking so it was it was definitely a, a, a little bit it seemed out of the blue um and i don't know you know whether it was a really strategic move on the part of of the leadership of the postal service or you know strictly a, a financial necessity that they that they arrived at but it did it did renew interest in the piece um you know right away which was which was which was interesting it was yeah. yeah, it was very timely. It, it it was I think it was literally a couple of weeks after at least I got the magazine at home. So that was that was that was interesting. There's this, you know, there's the news. It was interesting to me to experience the kind of the news cycle and, and how fast the news cycle is. And a piece like this is, you know, it takes a long time to work on and then it comes out and it's in a monthly magazine. But it's, you know, they post it online in you know, one day and maybe it's sort of people notice it for a couple of days um, and then it sort of disappears and then until something like this happens and then suddenly it's back. So you, you actually kind of feel the reverberations of the news cycle, even, you know, right, working on that in a monthly cycle like that. Right. All right. Can we switch uh, subjects a little bit and talk about writing in general? I know you have an MFA uh, in poetry. How, how did that how has that helped you as a when you're writing long form journalism? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> has it? I mean, you could you could just stop it. How has that helped you? Period. Um, well, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I think any time you spend, you know, you really sort of devote thought and energy and 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 uh, effort and sweat and lack of sleep to you know a degree like that or you know really thinking about what I spent a couple of years thinking very hard about language and about um, 
a form of writing. And I, and I wrote essays as part of that too. You know, there were, there were critical elements of that degree also, but, um, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe it's something as simple as, as, as the sounds of words and sort of, you know, I, I, whatever kind of writing you're doing, almost every kind of writing you're doing, what, what you're, what you're basically doing is building sentences and then you put those sentences together in different ways and at different lengths. But, you know, the, the, the real unit of, of force and, and import is the sentence. So, um, you're still often you're still these questions of syntax and how you, you know how and clarity versus you know obscurity and um, all these kind of questions that you sort of wrestle with in poetry um, have some carryover into any kind of writing and and whether it's you know a piece like this that's you know, 9,500 words or something. Um, you know, you're still working on it over and over at the at the sentence level, and I. I I assume that that experience um, has has helped me, you know, really attend very closely to the way I, I structure sentences, and you know, hopefully that adds to the, the pleasure or interest in reading them. We've been talking with Jesse Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein wrote the story "Do We Really Want to Live Without the Post Office?" for the February issue of Esquire. We've linked to, to that story on our website at www.gangray.com. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Join us next time when we talk with Wright Thompson of ESPN.com. Thompson is, without a doubt, one of the best long-form narrative journalists in the country right now. In February, his story, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building, was published on ESPN.com. The story is an in-depth profile of Jordan as he's about to turn 50 years old. It's really a brilliant story. We've linked to it at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangray Podcast. We also have a website. It's www.gangraythepodcast.com. Gangray the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. This episode was produced by Glenn Battishill and Steve Cease. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. I'm your host, Matt Tullis.